0: markets, speculation, and risk.
1: This is the Chat With Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up and welcome to another episode of the Chat With Traders podcast. If this is your first time listening, my name is Aaron Fyfield. I'm your host and thank you very much for being here. My guest this week is Jared Tendler. Jared is an internationally recognized mental game coach. His clients include world champion poker players, the number one ranked pool player in the world, professional golfers, and more recently traders too. If Jared was to summarize exactly what he does and what he specializes in, it would be removing negative and excessive emotion from decision making. So naturally, this serves as the underlying theme throughout our conversation, but we also discuss high-level topics like variance, the major crossovers between high-stakes poker and trading how psychology has been oversold and when it really matters, plus how to identify various types of tilt. Now, all show notes for this episode can be found at chatwithtraders.com forward slash 86. And if you enjoy this episode, please write in the comments, which are directly below the show notes and share it with your friends and followers on Twitter too. That'd be really awesome. Anyway, here we go. This is my interview with Jared Tenler. Well, let's just get into it. So, I mean, one of the first things I'd like to ask you about is your life prior to poker. I mean, what was that like? What were you doing? <laughs> so I was, basically, I got into
2: into this field because I wanted to play professional golf. Uh, in college, I, well, even before college, I was always dreaming of playing in the U.S. Open, playing in the Masters, and obviously winning those events. Uh, wasn't good enough because I kind of started tournament golf a bit late to play Division One. Um so I went to Division Three Skidmore College, figured I'd get a, a good uh, good education if uh, golf didn't pan out. And that the, the summer after my freshman year, I tried qualifying for the U.S. Open. There are two rounds of qualifying. And, and in that first round of qualifying, I shot even par, played one of the best rounds of golf I've ever played in my life, tee to green, and just completely choked on the greens. Uh, missed a bunch of short putts. That was totally because of pressure. Uh, and I ended up missing a playoff by a shot, which was pretty brutal. And, and so I was kind of recanting this story to a friend at a club uh, that I play at. And he showed me a book called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. And it kind of got me into, into psychology and I kind of dove into that. I, you know, I was a three-time All-American in college, you know, won nine events but by the time I was graduating, I still was having difficulty really performing under like really intense pressure for of like national events like U.S. Open, U.S.A.M. big big time stuff. And so I, I'm not one to kind of just try something unless I feel like I've got a really good avenue to be successful. And so I, I felt like the psychology that I'd learned had helped me. Um, like I guess that I, I was I did well, did great in college, uh, but it it just didn't help in those major pressure situations. So I. Uh, I dove into psychology, got a, ended up getting a second uh, degree uh, undergrad in, in in psychology on top of my business degree and and then went and get a, a master's in counseling psychology, trying to understand more about how to break down uh, mental and emotional problems, which I thought was lacking in the traditional golf psych health. So uh, I basically spent a f- several years doing that, getting educated, getting trained. Uh, I'm a licensed, technically a licensed therapist, although I never practiced that way. and And then basically just quit my job, moved to Arizona uh, where I knew nobody. (laughs) You know, talk about uh, retroactive overconfidence. I had no idea how overconfident I was, but I probably wouldn't have taken such a big leap if I wasn't. Um, Started to build a practice there working with golfers, uh, joined a golf course where I was kind of working alongside of a teaching instructor there, which was kind of a vision that I had that, you know, if golf is such a mental game, then there should be mental game coaches or sports psychologists at every golf course. It's kind of what I reason, but as it turns out, golfers, uh, really are not ones to put their money where their mouth is. Uh, you know, the everyday player wants kind of the easy fix. They want to buy a set of clubs. Uh, they want to watch a half hour, you know, video on TV or, uh, you know, kind of get the, the quick tip kind of stuff. They didn't want to do real hardcore work. And as it turns out, um, uh, I, I, did have a chance to solve my mental game issues and started playing some professional golf. Um, uh, I had a weekend where I, I shot 63, 65, 69, that really kind of opened my eyes to just how far I had come with my mental game. And, and yeah, like I guess I'd played some professional golfs, didn't make any money, so I'm not really sure how, <laughs> how professionally I'd call myself, but, uh, it was right at that time that I met, um, Uh, a poker player uh, on the golf course. And that's kind of what jumped me into, uh, got me into poker.
1: (laughs) Awesome story. Well tell us a little bit about how that person you met who was a poker player themselves, how that kind of uh, changed the game for you. Like what happened from that point? I mean, what were some of the things that you picked up from this person? Like how did that sort of change your path?
2: Yeah, it's interesting
1: because I
2: mean, I'm not sure. In fact, I actually had worked with one poker player before that. It was who was a friend, but you know, he wasn't necessarily that serious. But I, I say that because this particular guy, his name is Dusty Schmidt. Um, he was kind of like the perfect person. You know, you talk about good luck. Perfect person for me to, you know, make make an entry into poker uh, for several reasons. Number one, he actually was a former profes- professional golfer. Uh, he was leading the, the money list on a, on a mini tour in California called the Golden State Tour. Uh, he actually as a junior golfer at 13 years old, uh, broke Tiger Woods' record in California for the most junior tournaments won in one summer. I think he won like 35 events. Um, so the guy was, was really talented and kind of working his way up um, and ended up having a heart attack uh, at, at 21 or 22 years old, uh, not from cocaine. I'm sure many people think are hearing that are going to think that, but he had some kind of like, um, like aortic spasms or something. It wasn't sort of the traditional, um, uh, heart attack. And, and it basically just kind of derailed his career. His doctor said he couldn't do anything physical or anything, you know, really straining physically. So his golf career was over and he just, uh, happened to be friends with Casey Martin, who was a golfer and then kind of met another friend and who got him kind of into online poker. And that was, uh, I think back in 2005, 2006, and he, uh, when he and I met in 2007 was making, uh, between 20 and $30,000 a month was, was an insane, had an insane work ethic. And, and so when I met him fr- through, mutual friends on the golf course, um, he was having just massive, massive anger issues to the point where he was literally just like ripping his desktop computer out of the wall. He was, you know, smashing his monitor. He was breaking mice. Uh, I kind of joked because Uh, he basically paid for my sessions through the savings of his computer equipment, uh, not to mention how much money he made on top of it, but, but he was perfect because he really understood golf. So he kind of knew how to speak to me, but then obviously understood poker at a high level and was able to share poker related concepts, you know, in a golfing kind of way. And so he was able to kind of show me the ropes, help me to understand, you know, what the online poker world was really all about. And, and so, you know, he and I got, got started like in, in uh, October of 2007. Uh, and it wasn't like I just jumped right into poker at that point. I mean, I really had no proof of concept. I had no way of promoting myself. Um, so it was, it was really at that point where I was I was kind of actually starting to play professional golf. And it was an interesting choice point because in February of that that next spring, uh, Dusty happened to be part owners in an online poker training site uh, called Stocks Poker, who incidentally was, was co-founded um, by a guy who was formerly in the stock market. That's you get the name Stocks Poker. Uh, he had the moniker of, of Stocks Trader was his uh, his online uh, uh, you know uh, name, and and so this online training website was w- these these training websites were just kind of popping up, and and there was really nobody and t- discussing the the psychology of the game, and so Dusty you know gave me an offer to uh, to participate in it because he was you know a big part of that website. So uh, part of what what made my story with him so saleable was that, like I said, he was making between twenty and thirty thousand dollars a month before he and I got start got started, and obviously there's a little bit of luck involved in poker, or I should say a lot of luck involved. But you know when you play as much poker as he does, um, you know around a thousand hands an hour, uh, you take luck out pretty quickly. Uh, over the four months after he and I started, he made six hundred grand. Uh, so it was a pretty remarkable transition, <laughs> and and obviously he was pretty thankful of it. And you know as a thank you, I basically. You know, got a, You know this uh, this opportunity to start participating uh, on this training site, and so I made some videos and was interacting with people on the forums, answering questions, and really trying to understand the kinds of issues that poker players had to deal with. And you know, it wasn't very long before I had a roster full of of, uh, of, of poker players as clients, and and kind of realizing that that continuing to play professional golf was actually the risky thing (laughs) and, and jumping into poker was, was sort of the safe bet.
1: So I just want to jump back a little bit to something you said earlier in your response. And you said how this, uh, this dusty guy who you were working with was just super angry and, you know, ripping computers out of the wall, et cetera. Why was he so angry? Was it, uh, was it because of, you know, having that heart attack and having to uh, leave his golfing career behind or what was the cause of, of such great anger issues?
2: A lot of it for him was was variance and, and basically losing to what he saw were mediocre players. Um, you know, when you're competing... Uh, Against, you know, one of the good things about trading is you don't always get to see your competitor. I realize that's not the case for everybody, especially big big options traders. But, you know, in many instances, you're playing against the market. You're not playing against individual people, and so you can see how bad these people are, and and so that was that was very difficult for him to deal with. Uh, something I call um, entitlement tilt, and then the other side of it was injustice tilt, where he just couldn't deal with the variance. I mean, you know, in, in golf, you know, yes, there's, there's definitely a lot of variance and, 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 you know, good luck or bad luck, you know, much more so than golfers realize, you know, you get the occasional bad bounces, you get the gust of wind, you know, your ball plugs in the bunker, uh, you hit a perfect drive. It ends up, uh, in a, in a divot, you hit a perfect, you know, shot and all of a sudden it hits a car path and, you know, goes out of bounds. So there's a, there's some crap that can happen, but in poker, it is so built into the fabric of the game that it was very difficult for him to to make that mental transition. So we had to work really hard. Um, and and the thing is, like he's he's a very logical person, or at least desires to be. So it was it was it was very easy for me to work with him. I try to make the instruction that I give very logical, and and you know sometimes it seems very simple but getting there is, is not always obvious. So for him in particular, there was one, one story where, you know, I was, again, this is me kind of like really trying to understand poker. And, and at some point I said like, listen, so like, you're basically telling me that, like, you know, that variance happens all the time. um, And yet it still pisses you off. So I was like, it's kind of like, you know, watching a weather forecast and the weather forecast says, you know, today there's an 80% chance of rain and you go outside without an umbrella and then you get pissed off when it rains was kind of like what he was going through. And I realize it's not a perfect analogy, but it, for him, it really just kind of made something click that he's like, yeah, like I'm getting pissed off about something that number one, I have no control of. Number two, exists all the time. And so it's, it really just becomes like a business expense that, that losing in these particular spots is, is necessary, uh, especially in poker where you're dealing with a lot of perception. You know, poker players make a lot of money not, not all their money, but they make a lot of money because bad players think that they're good. And so you're, you're, you're basically battling up against the perception of skill, not just somebody's actual skill. Because if it's just about actual skill, then, then poker would become a lot like chess, where you have this worldwide ranking system. And for all intents and purposes, if you're within 200 points of each other, uh, within a ranking, you know, you could be beaten by somebody with a lower ranking, but if I'm ranked... You know, if I have a rating of two thousand, you know, in chess, and and you have a rating of hundred or or five hundred, there's never a scenario where where you're beating me. But in poker, you could get like literally the somebody who has no idea how to play poker, uh, and and they can they can beat Phil Ivey. They could beat some of the best players in the world over a small sample.
1: Mm, okay. So I mean, how do you how do you move on past that? Is it just a matter of kind of accepting? The the reality of you know kind of what like what you just spilled out there, or is there sort of something more? Yeah, I mean, it
2: it differs for everybody. That's why I say it was in particular for him. But but what what has made me successful working with golfers again? I still kind of still have some some golfers, poker players, and and traders has been being able to understand uh, a couple things. Number one, what is the faulty logic that is blocking you from being able to internalize or accept? Uh, a message like that? Uh, And then two, uh, how are we going to train it if it doesn't just sort of magically click in place, like it it really only does for about, you know, five or 10% of my clients. Um, So basically, that first part is, is by far the most complex, right? But it's important for everybody listening to number one, get an idea of what the major you know, kind of mental issues are that you're dealing with. You know, are you dealing with with anger? Are you dealing with anxiety or fear? Are you not trusting your gut? Do you lack discipline? Are you losing confidence, or are you overconfident? You know, just a kind of a handful of the issues, um, and and then start to try to drill down and understand exactly what those issues are about, and 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 there you you have an opportunity to start to figure out what the flaws are, and then devise corrections to them. And and the key in terms of the integration of those corrections is that they have to be applied in moments of high stress and pressure or or basically like when you're trading or when you're playing poker or when you're actually competing on the golf course, right? You can't just study your mental game off of the table or away from the action, uh, away from the trading day and expect those uh, corrections to be uh, integrated. Uh, You have to have what I call an injecting logic statement, and you don't have to have it. It's just kind of a technical term that I use. Uh, but basically, the injecting logic statement is is uh, the correction to that underlying flaw, right? So let's say, for example, you know you are struggling with a series of losses, and all of a sudden now you start uh, locking up some profit, you know, prematurely in a trade. Uh, you know, there's obvious, obviously, good reason for it, right? You're trying to, you know, regain a little bit of confidence, regain some momentum in your way, but you you almost get pissed off at how much how much advantage or how much money you're giving up. Um, so what you'd want to try to do is is figure out what the underlying cause is there. Is it some loss of confidence, right? And if it's some loss of confidence, then you'd come up with an injecting logic statement that would actually correct that confidence weak that that weakness in confidence, and then during the trading day when you sense that your confidence is weakening or when you're when you're in a trade where you have an opportunity to lock some profit in, then you, you take a couple deep breaths and the deep breaths are not a kumbaya meditative kind of thing. They are simply an opportunity for you to take a mental step backwards to get your mind a little bit stabilized so then you can inject logic and have that logic actually impact your actions or your decision making. It's a bit like if you have a heated argument with a friend or a family member and it's just gotten so you know, uh, emotional that, that it's just not productive anymore. So you literally step away, you go to another room, you go outside and you cool off. So the deep breath or the, t- the couple deep breaths is, is, is just an example of that, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be this meditative thing. Sometimes people get a little bit, you know, glazed over when they hear breathing or meditation. It's simply about readying your mind to be able to, to accept that logic and have that logic actually affect your decisions.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. okay now that was a really awesome answer Jared um, we're going to go much deeper into this I think before we do so though it's probably a good idea um, if I can just ask you to give just a general gist of poker like what's the objective of poker because you know like myself I've never played poker I've never sat down at a poker table and I'm sure many are listening to this uh, in a similar situation so just so we don't get lost as we go a bit deeper into this could you just give us a general gist of, of what poker is as a game? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, poker is a game that is
2: generally played for money. So, you know, many of you traders will, will, will appreciate that. And, and like trading, it's a game that has many different, uh, variants to it. So you could play a uh, five card draw, which is a game where you're dealt five cards. Uh, and then the draw part is, uh, there, there may be a, a round of betting Uh, number one, and then, um, you get to decide how many cards in your hand you want to keep. You like all five cards, uh, then you can keep all five. If you, if you want to get rid of two, then you can, uh, draw two more and get two new cards. Uh, but you're basically trying to make, uh, a hand, right? And a hand could be, uh, you know, a, a pair, uh, three of a kind, uh, they could be a straight. So, you know, four, five, six, seven, uh, typically five cards in a row. So, uh, eight, um, uh, a flush would be all of the same suit. So they're in poker uh, or in, really in cards. You know, there's four suits, uh, hearts, diamonds, spades, and clubs. Uh, so a flush would be five cards, all of the same suit. Uh, and then a full house would be uh, having two of a kind and three of a kind in your hand. Uh, then you've got a stri- uh, four of a kind, uh, a straight flush, meaning that the cards are not only uh, in the same order, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, but they're also all of the same suit. Uh, And then a Royal flush is doing all that with, um, 10, uh, Jack, Queen, King, and Ace. And the way that I, I, um, listed those are in order of strength. So the, the hands that you make that are higher up on that list will beat the hands that are lower on that list. So three of a kind, uh, beats, uh, two pair or, or even a pair. So basically in poker, whether you're playing, you know, a five card draw or there's a, there's one of the more popular versions is, is no limit Texas Hold'em. Uh, that in that game, you're dealt two cards. Um, and then there are five, what are called community cards, uh, that are, that are, uh, laid out as the hand goes on. So in that, in that game, uh, and let's say it's a, a it's, it's, a table full of nine people, all nine people are dealt two cards. Uh, and then there's a round of betting, uh, and that betting In no limit hold'em can be any amount that you've brought to the table. So let's say the buy-in was a thousand bucks. The very first hand you play, you're dealt pocket aces, which is the best hand that you can have. And so you bet and somebody else raises you because they think they have a strong hand as well. Well now, now you have an opportunity to re-raise them and bet even more money. So let's say your initial bet was 50 bucks. They say, no, I make it 150. And then you say, okay, no, you know what? I'm going to bet $500 uh, or even go all in and say, you know, you're betting the remainder of your chips in front of you. Uh, so the 950 that you had left. Uh, and then that person has the opportunity to, to either call you, call your bet uh, or to, uh, to, to fold. Now let's say they call and they had uh, a pair of queens right? So now you're going, now you're, you're playing your, your pair of aces, uh, versus your Queens. The, the probability in that hand is obviously in your favor because aces are the most profitable hand. So there's, there are some charts that, that people can look on online for this particular variant of poker, uh, no limit, hold, Texas hold'em. And what you'll see are, are basically hand strengths. And, and so, uh, I don't know the exact probability, but, um, I think it's something like, uh, either three to one or four to one uh, is the advantage for, um, aces versus Queens in that scenario. Uh, so I say that in part because poker is a lot like, uh, it's a, it's very, it's a very mathematical, mathematically driven game. There are statistics, there are odds, there's probabilities. And, and it's your job as the poker player to understand those probabilities and, and understand how those probabilities are going to change uh, as the betting goes on. Uh, and, and, and so just to finish up the description of this game, so. My aces versus their queens. Now, what's going to happen is the flop will come out, and that means the first three cards of the community cards out of those five. And so now, if if we weren't both all in and I didn't know what that person's cards were, let's say um, you know I I, I called his re raise of one hundred and fifty dollars, uh, by for example. Um, and so now I would be I would have the opportunity to bet again, and and so there's another round of betting after the flop. Then the turn comes out, which is the fourth card. There's another round of betting. And then the uh, uh, the river is the last card, and then there's another round of betting there. So that's that's one of I mean maybe forty or fifty different variants of poker, or uh, two including. Uh, uh, five card draw uh, and and really as I said it, it's a lot of statistically st- statistically driven uh, but there's obviously a lot of uh, you know live interaction that goes on when you're playing live poker where you're trying to understand uh, the psychology of somebody obviously there's a lot of bluffing involved you know as I think a lot of people tend to think of in poker but uh, but bluffing tends to be overestimated as being a big thing in poker by non poker players. Uh, Bluffing by the professionals is something that they do, uh, but they don't tend to think about it as bluffing. They sense profitable opportunities by which to represent something uh, that would appear to be a bluff, but is really something that they have determined is is you know positive EV that has a positive expected value uh, over the long term. Making a tr- making a play like that, uh, and in particular, they're going to look for uh, weaknesses that a particular opponent is going to have. And they're going to work to exploit those weaknesses, uh, as best as they can. Um, one sort of note in my view, I look at, at poker, uh, kind of like, or I should say professional poker players. I look at professional poker players, uh, kind of like the house, uh, you know, in, in, a, in any casino game. So you take uh, blackjack for example, and let's say you're playing, you know, the house is playing blackjack against somebody that has never played before. They don't have, you know, the chart that says kind of what the, the statistics are to minimize the, uh, the edge that the house has. Um, and so let's say the house in that interaction has a 6% edge. You know, they will take that forever. And that's why, you know, Vegas is such a, uh, <laughs> uh, why there are massive casinos built in the middle, middle of a desert is because the house is always going to win in that transaction. Uh, over the long term. And the same is true with poker players. Poker players are the house. They have an edge that is going to vary based on the the skill level of their opponents. And where I come in, it gonna, it's going to vary based on their skill level as it varies, you know, as I mentioned with Dusty or with other players based on how well they're able to control their emotions uh, and their mentality. So hopefully that was a good answer.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to summarize that, obviously this is a, this is a card game. Um, there's a lot of variants, like you've already mentioned, where do poker players actually get an advantage? You know, is it in the bet size? Is it in reading other players and and their ability to do so, or is it their actual strategy or is it, you know, kind of a mix of both? Like, you know, it is in trading. Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, they will get it in every way they can. They'll get it in how long
2: that they can play So their, their ability to, to maintain kind of mental endurance. So, you know, you take a, a recreational poker player and, and they may be actually pretty decent, you know, but as the night goes on, they're going to get tired and their, their, their decision-making is going to start to wane. And so, you know, really good poker players are going to be able to play at their best for longer. So not only are they better from the start, but then they're even, even more, even their, their edge gets even greater, uh, as, as the other player weakens. Uh, they're better in in their understanding of the odds. They're better in understanding, you know, how other weak players think. And so, you know, poker players will kind of categorize weak players. You know, they call them fish. You know, the, the the whales are obviously the the big ones. You know, card sharks are trying to attack the fish. That's sort of the the uh, the common terms there. Um, the the fish will have sort of different, um, There are different types of weak players. Sometimes players are weak passive, which is like the worst that you could be, meaning that you're gonna very often give up to, sh- to signs of strength. So if I'm aggressive and, and constantly re-raising your bets, then you might fold and we might not even get to the fifth card and I'm already winning. Because as soon as you fold, you give up whatever's in the pot. Uh, and so in those instances, you know, me as the strong player i'm just going to keep re-raising you until you show signs of strength and when you do then i'm going to fold because you probably have a hand and so poker player you know really skilled poker players are going to know kind of what general type of player you are and then once they zero in on what type of player you are uh, they're going to start to really under, really know the nuances so that in certain situations so as as the poker hand is being played uh, you know, there are dynamics that, 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 you've got to take into account, like where are you sitting at the table, right? So when you, when you are raising early on in the betting process, right, you're one of the first people to act, um, that, that's a, that's generally a sign of strength. Uh, but let's say, let's say of those nine people, you know, you're the seventh person to act and no one has acted before you. Now, all of a sudden the hands that you can play, you know, are going to go way down on that hand strength and you can raise into a pot trying to win some money uh without any without anybody um, actually challenging you. Uh so there are opportunities where where players can can take advantage of of weaker players in in pretty much every avenue you can look at and and where I have really kind of come in and uh is, is that there's become less and less weak players. You know, the education has gotten stronger. Uh online poker to a degree is, has dried up a little bit. Um, you know, in live poker it's still very very profitable, uh, but but really good poker players need to look for every edge they can, and so when their decision making is dropping, you know they look to me to to help to maintain that.
1: All right, now I'm in, really interested to know: Do the professional poker players that you coach think of poker as gambling, as anyone else would? You know, it's it's a betting game. It's held in a casino. Most people are immediately going to think of gambling. Do the professionals view it in this way still? No, I don't I mean I don't I don't know that they, they they may have back in the 70s
2: or in the 80s um but I think in general if they think about it as as gambling um they're not really that good. Um uh, I mean to me and and the ways that I've discussed it with them you know gambling is is something that you're betting on where you actually don't have a skill advantage or there isn't one that's known um and, and in some cases or in more cases, it's it's where the skill edge is actually against you uh, and you're gambling because there's the opportunity to make a lot of money, you know, with small amounts of bets. So why roulette is so popular. Um, so so no, they don't think about it that way. I think the, the, the stigma in general has decreased a lot um, societally. Uh, it still has a long way to go. Uh, but yeah, I don't think they, they view it, um, you know, as gambling and I think they're, Unfortunately, you know, having to work hard to convince, you know, family and friends <laughs> that it's uh, it's not something that they should be concerned about, especially when they're making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or, uh, or sometimes millions.
1: Right, right. Okay. So, I mean, it's fair to say that they look at poker as a business and they treat it like a business, yeah?
2: They do uh, for the most part. I mean, I think one of the things that I end up having to have a lot of discussions with uh, certainly some of the younger players is treating it more professionally. I mean, you know, you can think about some of them uh, you know, coming out of college, playing poker, they've never had a real job, um, they're super talented, they they work their ass off for several years, grind their way up, and and suddenly now have lots of money. And and so then their your work ethic starts to to decline. Uh they start to party more, they start to travel more, they start to burn money, um, you know, and they kind of take it for granted. And so, you know, it's like like an athlete who you know, had never really had to work hard and, and then suddenly is faced with a declining skill set and they've got to now work their ass off again to regain some professionalism and, and not lose their their opportunity to to continue to do great and, and, and win a lot of money or make a lot of money.
1: Right, right, okay. You know, really good answer again. I'm really interested to know, like, what is it about poker? Like, why are you attracted to poker and why are so many others attracted to poker over other card games I mean is there an edge in poker which you can't find in um other card games or well, not to the same extent at least
2: and, and by other card games you mean like other casino games or card games like bridge or uh gin
1: other casino games yeah
2: yeah so so the, the what's nice about poker right in a casino uh the house is basically uh charging you rake you know it's like, uh, you know, some of the fees that you have to maintain your account. Uh, you know, there's somebody charging you juice to operate your business. You know, you're not gonna get, you're not getting a free ride. So the casino is there taking, you know, money out of every pot, every hand that's played. They take a couple, they take some percentage, and that percentage, uh, you know, varies based on how much money is on the line. Uh, so the casino is there making money that way, but they're just providing the opportunity for you to go play. Whereas with a casino game like uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Pi or, uh, or blackjack, the casino is there to, to really profit from that game in particular and, and the way the cards are played. And so, you know, to create an advantage in blackjack, you have to be able to count cards and you have to have the, the casino, you know, structure the game in such a way that allows you to take advantage of that that card counting ability, which is why people who do that really well get kicked out because that's how the casino makes money. And if you're not, uh, if you're getting in the way of their ability to do that, then, then you're going to get kicked out, you know, as, you know, morally or ethically wrong as, you know, I, or we may think that is, you know, the casino is, is a, is a private business and they do get to make rules as long as they're not breaking, you know, state laws or, 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 um, governmental laws. Um, so, so in poker, Right. The reason that there's so much money for you as the professional is because the same reason that there's so much money, you know, as the casino operator is in, in having, uh, you know, slot machines or, or poker or, 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 you know, any of the other, um, you know, table games, which might even sometimes include, you know, like Caribbean stud poker as a, as a card game that they offer.
3: and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
1: So just sort of tying this back into trading now, you know, what are some of the most obvious crossovers that you see between poker and trading? Like I, I know you obviously work with a lot of poker professionals. And you're also starting to work with uh, some in the in the trading field as well. What are some of the, the major overlaps that you've noticed? Yeah, I'd say, uh, and and to clarify too, I mean, I, I I feel
2: like I'm in kind of like the you know year two or three of of where I was with poker. So I do you know understand trading and kind of like I was in poker. I played poker as a kid. You know, understood the game a little bit but really understanding the high-level nuances of, of what traders go through on a on a day-to-day basis is something I'm still learning. So I, I do profess some ignorance there, uh, although I've been steadily, as you said, uh, increasing the, the number of traders that I'm working with. Um, so the, the, the big crossover is just is dealing with variance, right? And, and I think a lot of uh, traders have difficulty dealing with that as well, in particular, because what makes trading, I think, far more complicated than poker is the fact that the game continually changes. You know, at least the rules of poker are fixed, you know, and, and aside from any, you know, changes that might be made, you know, by a tournament director or by a particular casino and how certain things are handled, you know, by and large, the rules of the game are, are going to change. But in trading, you know, it becomes very, very difficult to know, you know, was this the right decision? Uh, Did I actually have uh, some, uh, you know, good risk reward here or probability of uh, that, that made the trade worthwhile? Or uh, was that not the case? Uh, and, and I was misreading the market because, you know, the game can, can, can continually trade, uh, continually change. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the traders that I work with, um, they are dealing with uh, or they're, they're profiting in, in very high volatile uh, environments. And so, you know, for them, the last six months to a year has been somewhat challenging. Uh, that being said, right, that, that the adjustments that need to be made... You know, it doesn't mean that their entire trading strategy goes out the window, uh, but the ability to continually evolve uh, is something that poker players need to need to deal with, something traders need to deal with, and and that challenges people's confidence. It creates frustration in that process. Uh, frustration when you're losing money uh, is is a big thing. Uh, it, it sometimes can create fear. Uh, it sometimes can create overconfidence when you feel like you fit when you've kind of found something, and and you get a little bit overconfident, thinking that it's just going to continue to work without without adjustment. Um, poker players and traders both deal with with losing stretches and down stretches. Uh, they make tons of mistakes, uh, and and some people you know deal with those mistakes better than others. They've got to deal with focus issues, boredom. You know, you're dealing with a, a market that uh, you know not a whole lot's going on, and you end up start. You end up starting to trade just because you're bored. You're looking for some action. In essence, at that point, you're kind of gambling. Poker players do the same thing. Uh, it's it's something called being card dead. So you're just getting weak hand after weak hand, and you just have to keep folding and folding and folding. And you know, especially in live poker, it can be brutal. Uh, you know, in live poker, you might play. I'm oh, sorry, you might be dealt you know, an average of about 25 hands an hour, and it's not uncommon for you to have to fold uh, all 25. Or if you do end up having a hand that you could play, have somebody instantly re-raise you, but you're not, you know, your cards are not strong enough where you can continue and have to fold, you know, soon after uh, putting money in. So, you know, those sorts of things can be problematic. Uh, Sometimes, well, not sometimes, but traders sometimes have difficulty transitioning their strategy from, uh, you know, different markets, you know, if they, they move from, from one segment or one industry to another, uh, you know, that, that difficulty sometimes is a, a bit of, uh, of entitlement or overconfidence thinking that they're the fact that they're profitable in one sector or one, uh, one variant, uh, means that they're automatically going to be that way. in others, uh, poker players do that all the time. You know, they're doing great and no, no limit hold them. They start playing pot limit Omaha, or they start Playing, uh, you know, uh, PLO, uh, Deuce to Seven, uh, another variant, and 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 they think they're going to be great at it, um, and they may well be against other players who know nothing. Uh, but that that sort of overconfidence can happen. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, poker players get get so angry when they're losing money uh, that they'll jump up in stakes. Uh, they'll start doing things that they know are not profitable. Uh, in essence, trying to make their money back as quickly as they can, and and traders obviously do the same thing as well. Uh, and in trading, it can get uh, you know really bad really quickly. Um, you know, I, I think those are I'd say probably the biggest ones.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really funny how much of an overlap there really is. I mean, Saturday night I caught up with a, a few friends, and one of them actually plays online poker. Uh, takes it pretty seriously, and you know, we were just having a conversation, and just the amount of things that were just so similar between the two, uh, disciplines was, was really crazy. I mean, it was almost as though, um, he was a trader, you know, it was, we just (laughs) sort of keep that conversation going. It was, um, it was quite bizarre, but, uh, yeah, so a lot of really great points there and, you know, we're starting to get into the emotional aspect of it. So, you know, this is one of the things you're an expert in is removing emotion from decision-making. Um, Talk to us a little bit about that. Like, why would you want to remove the emotion and what's the benefits of doing so? I guess I should qualify it and say negative emotion,
2: Um, you know, or in a sense, uh, excessive emotion, you know, because you can be excessively positive as well. You know, almost too happy, uh, too overconfident, too excited uh, can be problematic. Uh, And the reason is because uh, it's gonna impair your decision-making. That is not just a... A, an opinion of mine. It's it's sort of a neurological reality, uh, and this comes from something some, from a uh, 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 some research on, on the brain, and also a pattern that's been uh, was was realized about a hundred years ago, uh, in something called the performance stress curve, uh, and so putting those two uh, concepts together, uh, you have uh, a process in the brain that many people, many people think of as the fight or flight mechanism. Uh, but that really only, really only kind of like uh, oversimplifies what this reaction is doing. But the basic idea is that when your emotions rise too high, they actually have the power to shut down higher brain function. So people often think about their decision making, right? The, the thoughts that go on in their head, they think about that space in their mind uh, in a way that is inaccurate. Uh, that that when your emotions rise, it actually starts to eat away at the number of things that you can think about, and the strength of those thoughts to turn into action. So if you've ever, if you've ever had a situation where, like you know that you shouldn't not be exiting this trade, or you should you know you should not be forcing you know a mediocre trade, uh, and and yet your hand still moves over and clicks. Uh, you know, exit or enter. Uh, and, and, and you're wondering, like, how the heck that can happen? Well, it's happening because the emotional system has become overactive and it's decreased the strength of your mind to take that thought and turn it into action. And, and so that is the main sort of reason why we want to remove the emotion uh, is, is to be able to retain sort of full conscious control, uh, clarity of mind, and then, obviously, you know precision in terms of execution. Uh, so this performance stress curve basically shows the relationship between. It kind of looks like an upside down U, right? If you if you kind of think in that bottom left hand corner of this of this graph, uh, in that scenario, you have uh, very little emotion, um, and your performance is also very low. Right, so you could think about that as a scenario where you're super bored or you're just really tired. Right, your performance is going to be poor. Well, your performance is going to be equally poor on the other side, where your emotions are super high, and your performance is also going to be really bad. There, you're you're very excited. Right, you've made a ton of money, and now you're going to keep trading. Right, or you're you're super angry, uh, really fearful, or or you know, greed has taken over. Um, so in that scenario, you're, you're sort of equally as bad because the emotional system has done roughly the equal thing to your decision-making process. Now, as you kind of climb the hill in a sense to the peak in the middle, that's where your emotions are most balanced. And that's what we're after. That's the point where you're in the zone, where you're in that flow state or in peak performance. That is where there's almost no friction from you being able to access the technical expertise that you have acquired over the years, matching it with your senses of the market and being able to create those intuitive reactions where you you kind of just know what's going on. and You're able to make lightning fast decisions without any hesitation, right? As I said, without any friction. And so really what my job is about is, uh, in essence, removing those points of friction. I kind of liken the mental game or what I'm doing in my job to like the oil in an engine, right? The engine is... Really, what makes uh, you know you profit? That's your skill, and, and and if you don't have enough oil, right, too little or too much emotion, then then the engine's either going to overheat or it's going to seize and uh, and and obviously not perform well. But but when you have uh, things just kind of humming, uh, that that's where you're making the most money because your decision making process is at its peak.
1: Very good. So you know how do we get into a state where we're as you called it humming? Like what are some of the Some of the exercises that you run through with uh, the players and the traders that you work with to kind of help them keep their emotions balanced. Yeah. So,
2: to be fair to like like what I'm trying to accomplish with players, it's not a simple thing, but it's also not overly complex. And I say it's not a simple thing because. Part of what I've tried to do with my with my work has been not to take the sort of traditional sports psychology stuff and just kind of plug it into poker or trading or even golf. And, and the reason I say that is because a lot of sports psychology will say block out the emotion or try to use previous experiences where you've been humming or been in the zone as a sort of a reference point to try to recreate it today. And I don't think that works long term. It might work temporarily in the short term, uh, but something that we might not be able to prove is more than a placebo, right? Like a sugar pill that isn't really producing anything of real effect. It's just a temporary, you know, manipulation of the mind. Uh, And so, so really what I'm after is isolating all of the specific reasons why your emotions are either going to be too high or too low. Right. And so we look at, at anger, for example, as, as a cause of too high or, you know, a lack of focus or a lack of motivation is a cause of, of a dropping too low. And we actually try to systematically go in and, 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 and understand why it is that you're getting angry in those spots? Why it is that you're losing motivation or focus in other spots? And 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 put in specific corrections for those things. And as a byproduct of making those corrections, you are automatically more emotionally balanced. It doesn't make doesn't mean that you're going to be permanently emotionally balanced and and humming, because there's a constant evolution that exists within your skill set, within your mental game. And so there's a constant need to be improving all aspects of your trading. Uh, but at a, at a minimum, right. Anybody that's listening right now, the first thing that you can do, uh, and I think the most important thing to do, is to start to study uh, your own uh, emotional reactions that you have throughout the day, right? So often when I start working with new traders, uh, or not new traders, but new clients, uh, their knowledge about their skill set or about their emotional skill set is really poor, right? They'll come in saying, uh, you know, I'm losing a bunch of money here. Um, I feel myself, you know, kind of hesitating, you know, I, I'm forcing trades here. I'm uh, losing focus here. But, but when you actually start to break it apart, they don't really understand why they don't know the specific situations in which it's occurring. They can't recognize the, the, the thoughts or the reactions that they're having in those spots. And, and I'm not saying that what they're coming to is, is not something I can work with, right? It's a start, right? So, so the, the easiest way you can start doing this is to start by identifying the specific trading errors that you have. Okay? The, the, the trading errors that you have may give you an indication that there's some emotional reaction, whether too high or too low, that's present. And, and when I say may, right, it's, it's really important to know that sometimes a trading error is simply a tactical one. Right? I'm not going to over, uh, over-prioritize the importance of the mental game. But, but here's where I can almost guarantee that a trading error is caused by a mental one. When you have continually made the same trading error year after year after year, and and you keep trying to learn more about the markets or learn more about the, the stocks or the uh, the companies that you're following, you, you think that the solution to that trading error is more technical knowledge. Then you know that it's mental, right? Then you know that there is some anger, some hesitation, some lack of discipline that is present in that spot. So basically... Uh, you, your C game, right? In, in poker, uh, people, uh, really just in sports, people think about their A game, right? But they don't often think about their C game, the, 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 the worst aspects of their decision making. That's a really important thing for people to begin paying more attention about. What are, the, what are the situations in which you suck, right? It's very easy to just say, oh, you know, that was just, uh, you know, the market went crazy, you know, yada, 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 I lost a bunch of money. Or, to say, oh, you know, that only happens once a month, not a big deal. Right. But the problem is that, that by not fixing those mistakes, you are limiting your ability to continue to progress as a trader, not to mention the amount of money that's being lost there. So I know, I know I haven't gotten into really specific nuances about how to actually fix this stuff, but hopefully this framework is at least
1: helpful to get started. No, I think that's a really good answer. And I mean, maybe if you could just expand a little bit on, you know, something you said there about you know, one of the first things you should do is actually study emotional reactions and really identify your trading errors. What's sort of like, how should someone actually go about that? Like, are they supposed to keep a journal each day? Are they supposed to write this down as as things happen or like, how do they, how do they keep track of this? You know, so if they were to work with someone like you, they can say, well, these are the things I'm struggling with and kind of have something tangible that they can present. I mean, is there, a, is there a way that you'd suggest someone actually studies their emotional reactions, as you called it?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the key word is study, right? And so that you're not assuming that it's going to be knowledge that you're going to produce instantly in one day. right? I think that's that tends to be the thing that people get a bit frustrated with in this process is they they sort of want to kind of know immediately and don't realize that... that under, like the mental game or mental skill is very much like technical skill, right? And any skilled trader is not going to assume that their technical knowledge is going to appear instantly. So, so you do have to kind of work at this day by day. So here are a few suggestions on how you can do that. Uh, number one, yes, you can take uh, notes during the trading day. If you're a trader who trades, let's say, less than, you know, 20 to 30 trades a day, then you've got ample opportunity throughout the day to take, you know, 30 seconds to write down the thoughts, like the specific thoughts that you had in your head around the time that you made that trading mistake, uh, the emotional reactions. If you sense, you know, something's going on, if you, uh, sometimes those emotions are felt in your body, you might be, you know, clenching your fist when you're, you're angry, your face might get tense, your shoulders might get tense. You know, you might be kind of leaning into the, into the monitor uh, or, or into your desk. You might be leaning back if you're, you know, kind of dismayed. Um, so you're kind of looking to try to, try to like fully kind of map out the thoughts, the emotional reactions, uh, the behavioral reactions, uh, and, and obviously the trading mistake and the thoughts that you had around that trading error, uh, as a way of kind of mapping out each one of those problems. Now, if you trade at a, at a very high frequency throughout the day, uh, then what you're best doing is making sort of just a a very, very quick note, maybe like a timestamp, uh, where you, whereby you can go back at the end of the day, uh, to, to take, uh, a greater look at it. Now in either scenario, I think you also want to ideally be expanding upon, uh, those notes that you're taking during the trading day afterwards. So, you know, if you want to think about this as a, as a journal, if you want to think about it as a log, uh, where you're just taking data down, I mean, it could be as simple as just a word document. You just open up and uh, date it, uh, and keep track of all of the mistakes. And then maybe once a week, you go back and, and review them. And, and, and at that point, you're looking for patterns. You know, my job is not that much different than your job, right? Especially those who are technical traders. You're looking at patterns within the market, uh, to understand where you have opportunities to exploit and make money. You know, for me, I'm not looking to exploit my clients, but I'm looking to exploit opportunities whereby their knowledge is lacking and, and, and be able to, to, to create some, some corrections. So, so the first thing you're trying to do is, is really create a map because sometimes, you know, traders, poker players, golfers, who, you know, you name it, um, even if they do have an idea of what, what their mistakes are or, or even what the emotions are, uh, sometimes their, their uh, priority is, is off. Right, and so they kind of come in saying, "Yeah, you know, I've got this this fear issue," uh, but it turns out that that this this anger issue, you know, it it, it happens more frequently, uh, and 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 when it happens, it, it tends to be more costly. But the fear to them is just more obvious because it's it's more kind of out of the norm for what they think is appropriate. Anger for them just seemed to be more more normal, so it wasn't as much noticed until we really got to talking about it. So so by by looking and reviewing at your note taking, you know, once a week or once a month or every several weeks, whatever frequency seems to make sense for you you can start to look at the patterns and understand how costly the errors are that you're making. And and look, there's a lot of good advice out there. I mean, people can pick up my book, they can pick up other books, you know, and start to try to find solutions to these mistakes. And 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 very you know, and and for sure people are, are going to be able to to make those corrections based on some of that advice out there. You know, where where coaching might come in is is when when you just get stuck and you're unable to fix a problem that, you know, is very costly. But if it's not that costly and it's not happening that often, then you know, you just keep working on it, but that, that awareness is at least going to give you the opportunity uh, to make a correction.
1: Now, a lot of these mistakes you've kind of outlined here, or not mistakes, but um, challenges, I guess is probably a better word. Do the professionals have these same challenges throughout their, their career, you know, once they reach a certain point, like are these ongoing challenges that constantly need attention or is it sort of like once you kind of cross over from what might be called an amateur to a pro, do a lot of these challenges become less prominent? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I'd say that they change
2: throughout the course of a career. I mean, I think, um, you know, you may solve an anger issue uh, that, that existed when you were an amateur. Um, uh, or, you know, and then when you become a professional, then, then fear becomes, you know, a bigger issue because now your livelihood is on the line and maybe you have a family and, you know, so beforehand it, there wasn't as much on the line, now there is. And so, you know, the nature of the game changes. So... The way that I would say it is that that like the mental game is always an important thing to to be aware of, to be thinking about, to be focused on as a point of improvement, uh, as an appoint as a as a point to be improving, you know, your decision making. Uh, but the specific things that you may need to deal with within this sort of framework, you know, may change. So you know, you it may go from you know having to deal with anger issues to then maybe having to deal with motivational issues. Maybe you have so much success because you solve your anger that now you're kind of you know, you're achieving a lot of your goals and, and, you know, sometimes people forget to set new goals, <laughs> you know, and, and so they lose motivation for as simple a, a reason as that. And, and that's happened to certainly poker clients of mine and as well as trading clients. Uh, so, so you think of it more of as, as, as the evolution, but I, I can't say that there's any particular pattern that exists that is sort of purely amateurist type mistakes uh, and purely professional ones. Uh, people are people and, and they kind of come into an endeavor, you know, with a set of issues that they're bringing from other things in, in their life. And, and those issues tend to play out, you know, in that environment, you know, in poker or trading or golf or et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, where they tend to not get fixed, they tend to kind of remain and, and, and linger. And then there are sometimes, you know, certain ways of thinking that you bring from everyday life, uh, into trading that, that are kind of antithetical or don't, don't match with the realities of it. For example, you know, understanding of variance, right? I, I don't typically think of that as like a mental game issue, you know, per se, as much as it is as a as a flaw in your technical understanding, because it would be like a business person not understanding you know their expenses. I mean, that's that's like a fundamental component of being a successful business person, right? You've got to understand where your income is coming from, uh, and you got to understand you know what your expenses are and, and where that's coming from. So if you don't understand variance, then you're not really understanding a fundamental business expense. So I tend to think of that less as a mental game issue, but but my point in general is that that you know these issues will tend to just evolve over time. I mean I had a, a conversation with, with one of the top poker players in the world recently and 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 we were discussing something that was very, very similar to what uh, you know weaker poker players deal with, even successful ones, which is, you know, self-criticism over mistakes. You know, this player's mistakes the, the weaker players would love to make mistakes that good, (laughs) you know, but, but the, but his, his difficulty dealing with mistakes, you know, was causing a lot of frustration. It was limiting, limiting his learning. Uh, and it was affecting his overall mood and mentality and the frequency with which he was going to play. And, you know, it wasn't costing him as much when he actually got there, but you know, it was something that he didn't want to keep around. So, so that dealing with mistakes was something that he had to deal with. And, and something that, that, you know, much weaker players have to deal with too. So it, it's much more about evolution than it is about, uh, uh, you know, sort of pure, you know, kind of, kind of categories of where they are.
1: Yeah. And I understand that one issue that affects uh, traders or poker players of all levels is, is something you refer to as tilt. Would you mind sort of describing uh, what is tilt and how to recognize when you're actually, as you call it, on tilt? <laughs> sure. So, so
2: tilt. Um, there's a, there's kind of a couple definitions for it. One was the definition that that was there before I came into poker, which was uh, tilt was pretty much any reason for you to play suboptimally, right? So you're you're making decisions that are less than what we you you would consider to be your best. Um, and so, upon studying you know poker players and their descriptions of tilt, you know, for several years, I really realized that you know eighty plus percent of their descriptions tended to be about them getting angry and making bad decisions. And so for me, tilt is just another word for saying anger. For a lot of poker players, they'll say, you know, tilt is anything, as I said, less than playing your best. But but what if you're drunk? You know, what if you're tired? Uh, what if you're fearful? Uh, you know, all of those reasons are going to be, are, are going to need unique solutions to them. So, uh, you know, anger is is really the biggest one. Uh, in trading, um, I would call the equivalent, uh, greed and fear, uh, and maybe to a lesser degree, uh, uh, you know, loss of, uh, of discipline. Uh, they tend to be the place, the, the words that traders use most often, uh, to describe their mental game issues when I don't think that that they're actually experiencing greed nor fear or, or, or a lack of discipline, um, that it's something more than that. But within poker, uh, what I did was break down uh, seven different types of, of tilt or seven different types of anger uh, that would exist. One was running bad tilt, uh, which meant, you know, players were losing for several days in a row, sometimes weeks or months. And, and they were, you know, just getting crazed as a result of it. Uh, and and the, the solution to running bad tilt um, has to do with the understanding that emotion accumulates over time. Okay. The brain has a mechanism by which it can, in, in essence, digest emotion, right? So you have a stressful day, you got angry one day. Uh, and so, you know, you go to bed, not in the greatest of moods, but you wake up the next morning, you feel fine, right? Nothing bothering you. You feel it's like a, like a normal day. Well, where, where did the emotion go? Right. In essence, the brain has like a stomach that digests the emotion much like it would uh the actual stomach digests food. Uh but what happens is when there's like a really emotional day, you know, or then then you know, you might go to bed and your sleep might even be disrupted uh in part because your brain is digesting all that. And then when you wake up the next morning, you know, you don't feel quite right. It's almost like an emotional hangover, so to speak. And so when you start that trading day or the poker player, you know, goes down and sits to play poker again, you know, they're not starting with like a, like an empty cup in a sense, right? Their, their tilt threshold, their threshold by which the anger is going to affect their decision-making has, has been lowered, right? Or their emotional level has already risen, however you want to think about it. And so in essence, it's going to take less tilt-inducing stuff to get them pissed off to the point where they're going to make bad decisions. So so dealing with that accumulated emotion becomes really, really important. And so for traders who have this particular issue, one of the best ways that you can uh, start to uh, break apart that accumulated emotion is to do some journaling, uh, is to write. And, and the writing, the purpose of it, first and foremost, is to get out of your head what those emotions are, right? You go have a couple beers at the end of the day, right? You're going to feel better, right? But are you going to actually get rid of the emotion? Probably not, right? So venting to other people, you know, has a way of getting the emotion out, but it's also not as productive. So keeping things inside is not a great thing. When you vent on paper, what you, what you do is you give yourself a record of the emotional reactions that are occurring. And that becomes helpful when you go back and look at it a day or two later and you see like, what the hell is going on here? Why am I getting so pissed off? And that's an important question to ask regardless of the mental game issue that you're dealing with. In particular, we're talking about tilt. Why is it that I'm getting so pissed off here? Is it because I just can't deal with losing this many days in a row? And, and so then you're able to start to solve things. But at a minimum, you know, you can start to deal with running bad by, by just getting that emotion out and minimize the accumulation day by day so that you can give yourself a chance to kind of reset. Uh, the next type of tilt I, I talk about is called hate losing tilt. I should have actually called it competitive tilt in retrospect because you know, like traders, poker players, you got, you're going to lose a lot. Right. And, and, and for people who are competitive, uh, especially those who are athletes or were in any kind of forms of competition earlier in their life, they, they have more control in those other avenues. They've been more successful and, and so they have more control over winning and losing. So not only do they hate losing, but now they've entered a, a profession where losing is built into the fabric of it and it just pisses them off. There's no way around it, right? There's a lot of competition. Well, what you have to do there is have to really start to understand exactly what it is that you're competing for. You know, and, and that's how you can start to correct it and, and reframe the nature of the competition, right? And, and so you, know, you can look at, at your goals as being something that you're competing for, uh, sometimes confidence or good feelings, emotions you know, you're competing for. Uh, and when you start to understand exactly what, what the nature of the competition is, you can start to round out some of the edges that will, will create those problems. Um, injustice tilt, entitlement tilt are two ones that I've mentioned already today. Uh, mistake tilt, uh, revenge tilt kind of always a fun one. Uh, you know, in, in poker, that would be, uh, a particular player is, is just constantly beating you, uh, or they say something or do something that kind of just annoys you. And then they, and then they beat you, uh, or a particular player who has just gotten the best of you, you know, time after time after time. And they, you know, now just hearing their, that person's name gets you pissed off. Uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, right, trading is, is a little bit less personalized than poker is. Uh, but, revenge trading definitely exists <laughs> you know and in a way of trying to get the market back for screwing you right so it may be less about a a person uh, and more about getting the entire market back uh, and then the last one is called desperation tilt uh, and this is where uh, i would say there's there's a line drawn between a performance issue right versus an actual gambling problem and this is an, a very important distinction to make for some traders and poker players to make right a, a performance issue Means that that what you're doing, uh, and uh, actually let me describe first. So desperation to you basically means that when when you are so desperate to recapture your lost. Uh, your losses that you'll pretty much do anything, right? You're going to increase your bet sizing. You're going to enter trades that you have no, you're going to start placing bets in, in industries or in, uh, in names that you don't even know anything about, right? It's, it becomes more pure gambling in a sense. Uh, that desperation to win overrides all logic and you do a lot of stupid shit that you're regretful of, uh, you know, the next day or even later in that day. Uh, when it's a performance issue, you can handle those losses. You can handle all the dumb stuff you've done when it's a gambling issue. Now you're betting with life savings. Now you're betting with, with money that you borrowed from friends. Now you're, now your, your life is becoming impaired. Uh, and that's where you've got to really look in the mirror and say, you know, do I actually have skill in this game or am I just a degenerate gambler? And, and fortunately most of my, my clients uh, have been in the, in the former category where it's a performance issue and we are able to correct it. But if somebody has you know, a, a gambling problem, uh, like I mentioned, I, I refer them to somebody locally because it's not something that I, I work on.
1: Yeah, okay. So I mean, you know, a lot of these kind of characteristics or personality traits or issues, whatever you want to call it, how much of this do you think is sort of tied back to, or as a result of earlier experiences in life? I
2: think, uh, a handful of it is, um, you know, not all of it. I think there are, um, there are certain, like, so I I had a a trading client recently who, you know, just had a really chaotic relationship with it, with his father and his mother, right? And had been in therapy before, thought he had resolved these issues and, and, uh, you know, comes to me several years later, really struggling to be consistent, right? Making money, losing money, knows he's got an edge in the market, but but when the losses start to mount, it's like something just totally hijacks his brain uh, and he's out, unable to, to maintain control. And so the losses mount and kind of override whatever, whatever gains have been made. You know, there's a clear-cut case where, you know, prior experience, there's, there's almost like a larger version of accumulated emotion at play here where emotions from earlier in your life are triggered, you know, during the trading day, right? So you're not really kind of dealing with a fair situation, right? The emotions from years ago, kind of live in your mind and they get triggered and quickly flood your ability to think clearly and make, make clear decisions. But then we have another set, other other sets of issues like, you know, perfectionism or high expectations or, uh, you know, difficulty handling mistakes or some illusions of control, illusions of, of permanence that, you know, certainly, you know, emerged through our lives or through their lives. Uh, but never really were were that problematic right there, there was never something in their life that they took as seriously as trading or as poker or as golf and so it's in that stress that these sort of flaws in 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 our psyche and in the way that we approach learning the way that we approach performance and the way that we even think about trading you know start to emerge right so you know sometimes especially for those traders that have been around for 10 15 years you know sometimes you're making trading mistakes sometimes you're making psychological mistakes in regards to trading, because it's something that you learned, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And it turns out that that knowledge is still kind of lingering in the back of your mind and just pops out at an inopportune times, right? So one example would be, you know, thinking that that emotion is the cause of your problems. And so you've sort of blunted or or like try to deny or avoid, you know, the anger that you've had. So you just kind of keep stuffing it away and, and suppressing it, trying to avoid it. And, and, and so that way of thinking you know, causes these big blow ups. Right. But it's not like you have like major flaws that are causing that anger. It just means that you haven't actually dealt with it all these years and and it just keeps popping back out. But, you know, and the flaw regarding that anger might because might be due to to your your weaknesses in understanding variants or your weaknesses in. Uh, in understanding, you know, what you can truly expect of yourself uh, or what you can expect of the market. Uh, So sometimes it is early and sometimes it's more of these sort of pure performance issues like I mentioned.
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. Some of the things we've talked about here, I'm thinking might be a little bit overwhelming to someone who's just come into trading, you know, might've only been trading for, let's say six months. At what point in someone's trading career is psychology Really important. Like, when should they start to pay attention to it? Like, is it is it worthwhile getting stuck into it right at the beginning? Is it best to do it maybe once you have developed a strategy of some type? Um, is it important when you're scaling up? Yeah, yeah. No,
2: I, I, it's a really good, really good question. And I think, um, I think psychology in the bigger scale has been oversold to a lot of people. I don't think it will ever be more important than your tactical knowledge. So the shorter answer is, you know, if you're somebody that doesn't have any major issues, you know, from earlier in your life, then, then psychology is not important to you or it is at a very minimal scale. Only something maybe in the neighborhood of like, you know, 5% of your time, you know, ought to be devoted towards it uh, until you've developed a, a profitable strategy that you can prove because at that point, if you're if you're getting angry, um, you know, it, it's it's more likely that your anger is a symptom of maybe high expectations of yourself or something that is going to be related to, you know, earlier in your life, not something that emerged from trading because you're not good enough yet for that to occur. Um, you know, so so you're basically looking at the prior issues. Uh, as, as occurring there and that's not a trading thing right So you may need to deal with some some psychology but don't do deal with it within the context of trading per se. right Wait until you've developed a, a winning strategy to do that. Um, and, and so then, then the question becomes like once you've established that strategy and you can and you can know that yes, this is a trading error that is not being being made because I actually don't know any better right I'm not losing discipline. Because I don't know better, I'm not. I haven't proven the strategy. Sometimes people, you know, lack discipline because they're not certain of what their strategy is. How how can you be disciplined about something that you're not certain what the rules are? Uh, you can't be right. Discipline is is something that is measured up against your goals, measured up against the points of responsibility that you're taking. Uh, and so, without without that being super clear, it's impossible for you to be perfectly disciplined. So so that's an example where you know, trading knowledge is really important to have. And so then once you start to see that your trading errors, like I mentioned earlier, are, are, are just not getting fixed, right? That there are certain things that are recurring. You're recognizing that, yeah, I keep making this same kind of mistake. I'm, I'm, I'm exiting this trade too early. I'm, you know, in the market more often, you know, I'm just sort of, you know, just, uh, overtrading because I'm bored uh, and, and it's happening too often. That's when you know that the mental game uh, or psychology is becoming more important. And that can happen at any point. Now, you mentioned sizing or, or scaling up. Uh, this is a really important concept. It's, it's kind of like moving up the ranks, you know, in baseball or, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, uh, uh, competitive sports played in the regular season, you know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, football or American football or uh, basketball, golf, right? Kind of the regular season stuff versus the playoffs, and then the playoffs versus you know the World Cup final, the uh, you know the Super Bowl or the Masters, the back nine on Sunday kind of thing. You know, as you increase those, uh, or in essence, scale up, you have greater likelihood for your weaknesses to get exposed, whether they be tactical or mental, and and too often people kind of fail to consider that reality when they are sizing up uh, or uh, you know as poker players would do as they jump up in stakes as well Um, and and it's important to have a a good understanding of what those are right and so what I what I I coach my players uh, or traders to do is to always understand what their C game is always understand what their bigness biggest weaknesses are and when they're sizing up when they're jumping up in stakes when they go and compete in some bigger events that they first and foremost have a really good strategy, one that they know very well for correcting those mistakes because those are most likely gonna be the things that are gonna trip you up. And if you can actually make the corrections to those mistakes in those instances when you're sizing up, then you actually go a long way to really internalizing or mastering the corrections to those mistakes so that they can actually go away and not become uh, problems anymore
3: hmm
1: Okay. No, that's really well said. And I think that's, that's a really honest answer as well, especially coming from, you know, someone like yourself, who's working in the field to say that it's maybe not the most important thing to be focusing on right at the very beginning. So no, I, I yeah, respect yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, sorry, I
2: just have to jump in one more for Cause I think, I think there's a lot of places that Uh, that, that like psychology is oversold. Like when I got into golf, right? Golf was 90% mental. Like that was the thing that people said. And so it just made intuitive sense to me. Like, well, why isn't everybody not, not focused on this psychology thing? Well, it turns out it's not that important, right? How you swing the golf club is the most important thing. How you make decisions at the trading, uh, you know, in, in trading is the most important thing. Cause if, if, psychology was 90% of the game, then the Zen masters, the Buddhist monks, the, you know, the meditation teachers, look, well, they should be the best golfers and the best traders. You know, the Dalai Lama should be a great golfer, but you know, they're not because they don't have the technical skill.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's really well said. Uh, let's just do a couple questions, uh, that came in through the chat with traders, Facebook group, uh, for anyone listening, if you want to join The Facebook group, it's totally free, of course, chatwithtraders.com forward slash Facebook and um, just follow that link and hit the join button and I'll, of course, uh, let you in. But yeah, I posted in the group to say that I was having you on and if anyone had any questions for you. So we'll just take just a couple of those. Um, one One of the first ones here is, would playing poker help as a developing trader? So for someone who hasn't played poker, has no poker experience, is it going to be beneficial for them to learn it, learn the game, in order to become a better trader?
2: I, I guess it would depend on how how long they've been trading. It sounds like um, uh, they're fairly new to trading, so I would say no, <laughs> because it's just going to be more of your time divided. Um, I mean, if you're a seasoned trader uh, and and you have an interest in poker, then uh, I can't see how it could hurt at that point. You know, I think of it like cross training. You know, football players playing basketball basketball players, uh, you know, playing soccer, uh, or, 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 whatnot. Um, so there, you know, there is that, that cross training effect that can occur. You can learn things from in different ways, but, uh, I certainly wouldn't advocate for people to split their time up because you only have so much of it.
1: Another one here is, uh, I guess this is probably more for intraday traders. So guys who might be sitting in front of the screen for maybe eight hours at a time, uh, with pretty hot, you know, who need to be alert and aware of what's going on. What tips can you give them for maintaining concentration uh, throughout the trading day?
2: Yeah. So I would start to number one, um, spot the trends in where those dips are occurring. Cause it's going to occur in some pretty predictable patterns. You know, the dips may occur because the, the market just kind of gets flat for half hour, an hour. And so after 10 minutes, your, your attention seems to lag. Uh, it might occur after a big loss or a big win. Uh, it might occur predictably at 11am, you know, every day. Uh, so once you have an understanding of the, of that pattern, uh, you can start to understand again. Well, what's occurring there, right? If it's the 11 a.m. dip, then maybe it's something physical. Maybe, maybe you're, you know, you're hungry. Uh, maybe you're not drinking enough water. Uh, maybe the caffeine from the morning has worn off, and you need to drink more of it. Which I'm not something something I'm advocating for, <laughs> but but you know you need to do need to do something physical to boost your physical energy, uh, and and so your, your solution there again. Um, when when we're talking about boosting uh, attention and focus. Uh, from a psychological standpoint, we are mostly focused on goals. Okay, goals define the direction of our focus, and the intensity of that concentration, uh, and 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 uh, uh, can be dictated or or corrected when you sort of reconnect. Uh, to your goals. It's kind of like, like an athlete who a commentator might say, you know, is digging deep, right? There's moments where the momentum has kind of shifted against them and they dig deep and pull out, you know, uh, their, their uh, uh, some strong performance, uh, thereafter. It, it, what's happening when they're digging deep? I, I think they are reconnecting to why it is that they, they care so much. So as a trader, what, what I would suggest doing is writing down your short-term goals or, and or your long-term goals whichever one you think is going to give you that little boost of inspiration and so you know, number one, when you're able to recognize that your focus is 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 dropping, uh, it's important to act at that point, right? So when I was discussing earlier that performance stress curve, the farther down you fall, whether your anger is, is rising too high or, in this case, your focus is dropping too far, the farther you fall on either side, the harder it is to climb back up to the top. The quicker you can catch yourself, the easier it is to climb, and it's just it's just pure distance, right? It's it's like if you're climbing up a mountain and you fall, you know, 10 feet versus 100, right? You're going to obviously climb up faster. So that's the idea here. Spot the trend quicker. And then in those in that moment, take a couple deep breaths and remind yourself of your goals. Perhaps even read them out loud. And in that moment, start pushing yourself to maintain focus, much like you would push yourself if you were in the gym uh, trying to lift more weight, right? The gains that, exist, or that occur when you're in the gym occur when... You actually have to force something, right? If you only do what comes easily in the gym, you don't get stronger. So if in this case, you're trying to increase your mental capacity, your, your, your endurance or your focus, you've got to push yourself and you've got to push yourself in those moments. Those are your weak spots. Uh, and, and, and that process is how you can push yourself in a way that's, uh, going to get you more focused. Now, one last piece here, which may be, may be, really helpful, right? Just forcing yourself to focus more doesn't automatically mean that you're going to make sound trading decisions. So what you may want to do is look for the typical mistakes that you would tend to make at that time, right? If it's purely, yep, I'm just kind of dial tone and I'm not even really reading the market that well, well, you're not, like you could, you could autopilot the market, right? To a certain degree, right? If there were huge edges, to be seen you're going to spot them you know just by sitting there right it becomes more of like the nuanced stuff that you miss and so you want to come up with a couple reminders of key things that you ought to be focused in on you know at that time so it's recognize that your focus has dropped take a couple deep breaths remind yourself of your goals push yourself to be more focused and then remind yourself of a couple technical reminders uh so that you can actually make some some sound decisions
1: really great advice. So that was, that was a really phenomenal answer. Um, just one last question that also came through in the, in the Facebook group, what are your thoughts on meditation? I think you're probably the right person to ask about this seeing as you're in the, the psychology realm. What are your thoughts on, on meditation?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's an important, uh, question and I'm, I'm glad it got brought up because meditation is something that's taken off, uh, recently mindfulness, uh, and I think for good reason, but like a lot of things, it can be oversold. So meditation uh, can be really good to help to build mental strength. Uh, in essence, like control of your mind, uh, it can be really good for gaining self-awareness. So the thing, that, the task that I was asking people to do earlier, you know, it, it allows you to create greater presence, allows you to sort of like a look inward and understand your thoughts better, understand your emotional reactions better, understand what's triggering your emotional reactions. Um, Beyond that, the way it gets oversold is that people use it as a solution to their anger problems, to their fear, to their, you know, lack of discipline. And in general, it's not right. If you're using meditation in that way and you're also, you know, doing some direct psychological work on your anger, then then yes, it's it's totally appropriate. But but you don't want to use meditation as a as a covering as like a, a way of avoiding or blocking out your anger because it's not going to solve it uh, as deeply as it needs to be to the point where it, it it disappears for that particular reason. So you have entitlement tilts, right? Or or you know you have a difficulty dealing with long stretches of losing. Well, once you understand what that difficulty is, then making that correction is going to fundamentally alter your reaction to those situations in the future. It, it's kind of like like taking a bomb and diffusing it the bomb can still be there but it's not going to actually blow up right whereas meditation almost like like puts sand over the bomb so now it becomes a lot harder for it to get triggered uh but 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 ultimately in the long run that's going to limit your upside mentally because you're not actually really growing you're just growing mental strength you're not actually resolving problems that are going to free up mental space And, and just to clarify that last point when you have these mental issues kind of running in the background, right, and they are, are unresolved, they're not solved, they're just blocked out, protected, avoided, whatever, it's kind of like your computer with programs running in the background, right? So, so all of a sudden, your memory, you know, your resources are being consumed, but nothing's open on the desktop, right? So your computer is not going to function quite as crisply, not as sharply. You know, things might be a little bit slower in spots. That's the consequence when you don't resolve mental game issues, and frankly, it's the same consequence when you don't resolve technical issues, right? Your C game, right? So that's why it's so important to become aware of them uh, and correct them directly. And and meditation can be a tool in in the process of that, but it is not generally a solution in itself.
1: Awesome. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Jared. I mean, I've I think a lot of what you've 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 shared with us is is really good uh, insight. You know. Uh, me personally, I think you know. So there's a lot of psychology stuff out there. I don't really relate to too well. Um, I find it a little bit wishy-washy. But I mean, that's just me personally. But I think like what you've spoken about here is um, you know really uh, tangible, if that's the right word. You know, I think it's it's really sound advice. So no, I really appreciate you for coming on. Thanks a lot for doing this. Absolutely, Aaron. I, I appreciate that feedback because that's you know, frankly, I was
2: I was a consumer like that too. So I've kind of made my program the the way that you described for for you know, personal and, and professional reasons.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. So where's the best place that, uh, listeners can go to find out more about you?
2: Yeah, they can go to my website, jaredtendler.com. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, uh, at Jared If they want to check out my poker website, it's, uh, jaredtendlerpoker.com. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook, but primarily just for poker. I don't use it a ton. Uh, it's a uh, Jared Tendler poker.
1: Okay, and you've also got a couple books out as well, don't you? Do you want to share those? I do. Yeah, yeah. So I've got uh, uh,
2: the the Mental Game of Poker uh, one and two. Uh, the first book uh, covered the main mental game issues: uh, tilt or anger, uh, fear, uh, motivation issues, and confidence issues. Uh, and then the second book dealt more with with uh, peak performance or the zone. Uh, got into uh, really efficient learning. Uh, over the years, I've had to become an expert in learning uh, because to correct your mental game issues is a learning process. So uh there's a lot of information about there in there to actually improve your 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 learning efficiency. Uh it get and then it also gets into decision making, uh goal setting, uh focus and and mental endurance. So it's kind of like the, you know, get rid of the crap in your game. And then, you know, volume two is well, let's see how good you can become. Uh, and and I will say too that the uh, the books are available both in soft cover uh, ebook and also audiobook and the audio book you can get for free. Uh, and there's information, uh, about how to do that on, uh, uh, backslash free. Basically you just sign up for a, a free account on Audible and, and you can get your first book for free and, uh, make it my book.
1: Awesome. Okay. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, not that both of those. And, um, you've also got a podcast as well, don't you?
2: <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah. The, it was recently a very mental game uh, of poker focused, but I kind of got bored of having the same conversations with professional poker players. So in the last, uh, you know, eight months, uh, eight to 10 months, I've started expanding it out and, you know, interviewing, you know, kind of mass market authors. Like I had the, the author of a book, uh, Deep Work, uh, Cal Newport, who uh, wrote a book that I highly recommend about, about focus and, and depth in, in work. Uh, on the show, and there's been authors uh, or, or you know professionals like that, like that, and kind of all walks of psychology. So, uh, yeah, that's on iTunes and and uh, on, on both websites.
1: Awesome, very cool. Well, I'll of course include uh, links to everything we've just mentioned here at chatwithtraders.com. So you can find everything there in one place as well. Uh, Jared, once again, man, thanks a lot for doing this. I, I truly appreciate it.
0: Absolutely,
2: Aaron. It was great to, great to talk with you. Thanks for having me on.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders.